So welcome to Serious Introspection. We are here today with Andy Beckerman, who's calling in from Los Angeles. This is like the first time I've ever done a long distance recording like this. And if you're probably wondering why we suddenly decided to drop a podcast after two years, it's because uh, Andy and I have been emailing each other after a long time not in contact, which was instigated by the death of David Berman just last week. And when we started to write back and forth, I thought, hey, let's just record this. Let's do a little Remembering David Berman podcast. I'm not sure there's going to be a tremendously large audience for this, since I think most of the people who follow the series introspection feed are friends from Helsinki or friends who have seen the show. And I wrote a, an email in my uh, Sedia newsletter last week that was talking about how David's death affected me. I'm using the name David as if like we're on a first name basis when I never met the guy. And Try DB. DB, DCB, because he was David Cloud Berman, right? His middle name was actually Cloud. Is that true? I, I've seen it written that way. I don't know if that was an affectation, but um, it, it might be, but... Anyway, I, I, I don't know if, if you had this too, because you also, we both broke our rule about, as we call it, public mourning. And, uh, yeah. Which, which I hate. I mean, I actually think it's one of the, the most awful aspects of the social media age. Oh, you don't like, after a celebrity dies, you don't like seeing everyone say R.I.P., you know, who, who just died, Peter Fonda? R.I.P. Peter Fonda, and then one line, or like a picture of them with Peter Fonda? No, that actually I, I don't care about. It's more the, when I was actually still on Facebook, it was seeing this sort of contest I perceived where people, if it was, I mean, if it's Peter Fonda, I don't know, that's not somebody who had a lot of impact among my life or those of my friends. But if it was a musician or some sort of artist or writer, it almost felt like a bragging contest of like, oh, well, this person's work was so important to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I see it more as like a, a narcissism contest where it's about, it's not just like whose work is important to me, but it's more about like, Look at the look at me. This person died. I had contact with this person. Yeah. And now that, please please like and retweet the thing I made so that I, the serotonin can pump through my brain. It, it is a way of making someone else's death about you, which is, I guess, precisely what we're about to do with this podcast. <laughs> and I should, well, no, this is the thing that I thought when like what the, the there's I don't know if there's a difference between um, David Berman's death. DB's death and um, any other famous person, and against famous in quotes, um, any other famous person's death in the eye of um, culture at large. But I do think there is something slightly different um, on the fine grain. I think, you know, there's, there's something about like, there's something about Silver Jews and David Berman in general that I, that I think is a connective tissue between a lot of people in a way that other artists aren't. That's something I definitely and, noticed. Like, yeah, in the in the incredible incredible outpouring of like grief pieces and remembrances that have been coming out on the blogs and the various internet sites I read. There are a lot of people that are having problems with this. Uh, to, Me among them. I, I saw Tom Sharpling tweet. The other day, not, you know, just like saying, like, is anyone else having a lot like trouble after his death? Like, he, he's like, this is really hitting me in a way that it hasn't hit m you know, me before when other famous people have died. That's certainly the case for me. Oh, by the way, I should have. Andy, is, you're a proper podcaster and you actually know how to, like, run a podcast and be a host. I didn't even introduce you or who you are. Um, maybe we should do that now. Uh, Andy is the is a writer and comedian based in Los Angeles who is the host of the podcast Beginnings, uh, co-host of Couples Therapy, is that correct? True. 
Yeah. Is there any other um, bio you want to get out there before we start to get all emotional in indie rock today? <laughs> no, I mean, you can find me online if you really want to. Yeah, uh, I mean, TV you, writer. You and I have known each other. Los for, Angeles. You and I have known each other for maybe 20 years that we haven't really seen each other in a long time, 10 years or so. Yes, you, you're an expatriate. But you are yeah. the first person I wrote to when I was like, I mean, I was just... I, that first email I sent you was like a stream of consciousness mess because I just was feeling so strange about it. And I thought you would be like the one person who would understand. And I half expected you to kind of just like coldly dismiss it or not answer me because I'm insecure. <laughs> and then Wait, why answer, did you think that about the, did you think that specifically about me, that me as a person would dismiss it or that it as a, um, that, that this, affecting you was dismissible that, that yeah that it was affecting me this much because i mean i haven't felt I, people who have been in my family who i have known in person have died as suddenly and it hasn't affected me to the same state that this person who i've never actually met and you know maybe that's something about the power of art or huh. maybe it shows what a, a cold and callous person i was but i almost maybe in a way I, <laughs> maybe in a way i wanted somebody to say like you're being ridiculous you know this is a this is a, a artist you liked this is a, a writer and a musician whose music affected you. It's the same as when Kurt Cobain killed himself when you were 14. When I was 14, Kurt Cobain killed himself, and every kid in my high school was crying the next day. And I was just like, okay, whatever, who cares? Yeah, do you know what I used Kurt Cobain's death as an excuse for? My dad had been promising to get me a Nirvana t-shirt. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he died, I was that night, I was like, Dad, if you don't get me a Nirvana t-shirt now, they're going to be all sold out. That's and so we went to the mall, and he bought me two Nirvana t-shirts. The collector's items, do you still have them? Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I just remember one was, like, the cover of Incesticide. I remember that shirt. And that's was... that's all I remember. But, like, that, I thought about that after Dave Berman died, how, like, oh, when another musician who was supposedly important to my development as a human being died, my first thought was a kind of commercial, consumerist... Um, thought when I was like 14 and this, and I was thinking about it because it contrasted with, with when I heard the news about Dave Berman, it contrasted with like actual shock and like feelings of grief to me, not the same kind of grief as a family member that I cared about or a a friend that I cared about, but a shade of that grief Mm -hmm. in a way that no other famous person's death has affected me. The only musician, or I guess any person I didn't know whose death affected me even slightly like this was actually when, when Charles Gaucher, or Gaucher, I'm not even sure how you say it, the drummer from the Sun City Girls died of, of testicular cancer. It was quite shocking, and it was this is a time when I was just completely obsessed with Sun City Girls, and I was really inspired by them, and it felt like he had been just ripped away from us too soon, and, and this brilliant band who could have gone for 20 more years was just over. And I had just seen yeah. them live, you know, so that, that affected me. But I wasn't, I was, I was, I was crying about David Burma's death. And I've, it's been a week and a half now. And I, I haven't listened to any Silver Jews or David Berman music at all since he died until 10 minutes before we started recording. Because <laughs> um, I just, I didn't know if I wanted to hear it. And it, it doesn't even matter because the, his music has been in my head in obsessively. I've only in the last couple of days stopped just having like lines and lyrics just looping. To the point where it's starting to make me a little bit crazy. and I, Oh, yeah. I, I obsessively listened to Purple Mountains. I mean, I was listening to it a lot before he died. Mm, yeah, I was but, too. But afterwards, 
I was like listening to it every day. And it's interesting to me how like I, I also listen I've been listening to every Silver Jews album that I liked. Um and I thought about this. The natural bridge starts out with no, I don't really oh want to die. God, yeah. I mean there's so many lines that just they they get in my head. Or like I come across them as I'm like looping, even if I'm trying to do something else in the back of my head. And even, you know, no one should live two lives. These, yeah. These well, it goes like, from like, oh my God, they're crippling, aren't they? It Well, it's interesting. Like, I don't, again, I don't, we, I mean, we know he committed suicide. That's been officially and confirmed I, I, now? I, what's that? Has that been officially confirmed now? Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think they released that the other day. I mean, that was so, no, no surprise, but yeah. It's interesting that his depression goes from I feel ghoulish by the way dissecting it like this mm-hmm. and I really don't want to but I've been thinking about it a lot how like and I I think about this that in, that it is a in 2019 we live in such a nightmarish era I don't know how it is uh in in Finland but like it really feels oppressive and awful here Mm-hmm. And if you have depression, it, I, I, it's like um, it's like a frog in boiling water. Isn't that the the metaphor? Yeah. Like the the frog, if you put it in like regular water and then you boil it around the frog, the frog doesn't really know until it's dead. Yeah, isn't that? I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the metaphor. I don't know. But that, I, I, it feels like people with depression. That's what it's like in America right now, as we kind of like descend into fascism. And so, like, I think people who are, who who have depression are are particularly attuned to that stuff. And I think, I don't know, like, like the trajectory of Dave Berman's life to go from no, I don't really want to die to killing himself. Well, I mean, that was going from that was over how many twenty years, and he also tried to commit yeah. suicide, I think, in two thousand and three as well. So that yeah. was something that's widely reported. Which I don't know, you know, there's also. Death is such a presence in all of his songs and poems. Not all of them, but I would say almost the majority of them deal with, if not death, some sort of sense of the void or some sense of absence or where you might disappear. And he's such an existential songwriter. And I think maybe it wasn't until the the terrible news came that I I realized, I mean, I would have always had cited Silver Jews as, if not my favorite band, because I'm not, you know, still saying who my favorite artists are. I don't make those lists like I did when I was younger, (laughs) but, you know, certainly one of my favorite bands. And I think when he went, I realized how much he, he is my, the most important songwriter or lyricist in, in all of music ever for me. Absolutely. Because what I think I said in my, um, in my newsletter, I actually can't even imagine who I would be if his music hasn't been a part of my life for the last 20 or 25 years. I yeah. mean, it's like inconceivable because I formed my sense of myself in this world through the visions of America, of, of just love and relationships, all of these, these wry observations he made about the world that are sometimes, you don't even know how to, if you should take them seriously because they have this you know, humor to them it all sort of wrapped up into my personality in some way. You know, he's not the single influence, but I think as I went into my own in in this world and really started to feel like an adult when I moved away from my parents and started to be on my own, I think that, yeah, I really hit my stride, and that was American Water was like the soundtrack to that to some way. <laughs> it's Which isn't even necessarily my, my favorite record or anything, but yeah. All right. 
Is the problem that we can't see Or is it that the problem is beautiful to me Birds of Virginia flying within you Like that ground It's, yeah, but like, I mean, he's he's very deeply connected to him. The, the reason that I thought about this, like that, that in some way, look, he, he's always had, had problems. He's always suffered from depression and I, who, you know, who knows what else? I don't want to speculate. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's very, it, like his poetry, his lyrics, the way he is, is very deeply connected to the mythology of America. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, just the, you saying American water and you know, like how much of his stuff is like tied to geography, how much of his lyrics, like even more so than the mountain goats or something like that. Right. He, he it's very specifically like, um, you know, what is the, What is one of the lines in, um, suburban kids with biblical names? Like yeah, sure. there, there, there's this deep connection. He's this kind of like nexus of geography and history. Specifically, American geography and well, history. Maybe this happened because you 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 posted on Instagram how his death affected you. So that was your sort of public outpouring. And I sent my newsletter, which is primarily read by people who have been around me the last couple of years. And in the past week, I saw a few people in person, and like three or even four times, somebody said to me, "Oh, I saw your email. Um, yeah, sorry, that's sad, but I listened to some of his stuff, and uh, it doesn't do anything for me." This like need for people to dis- dismiss or say that like that they didn't really like his music, which I didn't really care about, except I thought like, well, why are you telling me this? <laughs> but then it, it also hit me that like, yeah, this this might be where I mean, I haven't lived in America for twelve, fourteen, I don't know how many years now, but I don't even necessarily identify as an American, but yet his work is so distinctly not necessarily about America, but about the America that I want to exist, maybe. Yeah, you know the, the well. This is grandiose, yeah. so I don't really mean this, but like in some way, he is like this American avatar. Yeah, like a there's this kind of like I don't know. I mean, you can throw in all the like important American writers, Twain and Vonnegut, and all those people. Like again, take all this with a grain of salt. No, I, um, I would rank him up there with with any of them, honestly. But I and in his specific Americanness, and so I wonder, like again, like I, I just keep going back to like how difficult it is to live in America in 2019 if you are sensitive in any way. And if you are this avatar, how like, how, how, if you feel, if, if you really feel America, how that must affect you on a cellular level to, f- as it, as we descend into barbarity. I don't know. I mean, you're, you're connecting his, his condition to the present situation um, socially and politically in America, which is also a form of speculation. I don't know that I subscribe to. I don't know that he was particularly attuned to politics. I mean, everybody is. To some he was. Extent. He was spending. So I listened to this interview with him, which was kind of the interview itself was kind of boring. I think the the interviewer was just going through. It was a podcast. You can, I'm sure you can find it. I if think you it's, want. I've, I I've seen it mentioned a few times. Something he did just last month when the album came out, right? Yeah, I don't want to name it because I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to drag the uh, interviewer. But it was kind of boring because the, the guy was just like going through like the songs and being like, "So what's this one about?" Yeah. And I'm just like, "All right, dude." But there, you know, listening to 
David Berman, listening to you know the way he was talking about his life, he was living in, I guess, an apartment uh, that was part of the Drag City offices. Yeah. He had isolated himself, basically. I guess he was uh, in the process of or divorced from his wife. And he was spending all his time reading history books and talking about uh, politics and thinking about politics. Okay. So I, I look, I, I am um, speculating, hopefully not ghoulishly, but I'm just, but I do think it's particularly difficult if you are sensitive in any way, and especially me in this in, again in this kind of like metaphor of Dave Berman as this American avatar or avatar of America is probably a better way of phrasing it. That. Um, that at, that that you can feel it in the air the how how awful things are getting here. Yeah, I think that the America in his his lyrics is often an America that disappeared a long time ago. Anyway, I mean, I'm I'm really I keep thinking back to the last year I lived in the U.S., which was 2004 to 2005, and I lived in Lexington, Kentucky, and that's kind of when I fell in love with American Water because I I love Starlight Walker and Natural Bridge in high school. And I remember when American Water came out, it, it didn't like click with me at first, so I kind of listened to it once or twice. It's actually when you and I were at the radio station at, at University of Pittsburgh. So yeah. was that 99 or 2000, I think it came out, 99? It was It was some mid-college, so yeah, somewhere yeah. around there. I remember like this copy came in the station, everybody was excited. I listened to it, and it was like, oh, Malcolmus is back. That was kind of the news about it. It didn't do much right. for me. I mean, I have a couple songs, and I kind of just like moved on to other things. And then that year I was living in Kentucky, which in a way it was a very, very lonely year for me, even though I lived in a house with eight other people and I was quite involved in music and social things. But I remember I even uh, got into a relationship at the end of that year. And it was during that last couple months, I had this car. It was like an old 1993 Honda Civic. And I was driving it around for whatever reasons. I had a job or I had to drive around the city. And I would just listen to American Water over and over and over. And that's kind of when it hit me. So I was buying into this idea, not just of this American landscape and this like pre-globalization, pre-strip mall America, or rather the strip malls were all independent (laughs) businesses rather than corporate franchises. And I was also like, I, I was living outside of Pittsburgh for the first year of my life and I was getting ready to move overseas. So like all these things were kind of making me feel like I had like blossomed. I had become a person. I was an adult now. And I think maybe that's when the roots of, this identity through his music started to really sink into me. And for some reason, there's this one street in Lexington called Southland Drive. I don't know if, if it's still like it was in 2005, but a friend of mine referred to it as a strip mall museum because it is like a long stretch of weird like shopping areas, but none of them are actually have been updated since the 70s and a couple independent mm-hmm. businesses, you know, a lot of rundown places. And it's basically yeah, that's exhausted. Yeah, that street is like, the silver juice street i mean it's like all of the things (laughs) all of the stuff that is in his songs all of these these images and the honky tonks and this idea of just an american that is it's totally overly romanticized by our generation because we never really experienced it we only experienced it through culture and you know he was 13 years older than me so he experienced more of it but i think to some extent it was what he went looking for and I don't I say that as a criticism in any way. I think it is, it is, he was a troubadour of this. I, I think pre-globalization America might be the best term to use. The faux nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, I don't find his music to be nostalgic. I don't like. I don't see it as like saturated in that kind of like cheap, 
um, sentimental nostalgia. I, I mean, it's nostalgic for me because I, I spent my life growing up through it. But, I just meant like a a vision of an America that never existed. Yeah, or if it did, you know, it's, it's the America of like Stanley Elkin novels. You know, it, it's definitely not a coastal America at all. Yeah. Yeah, the franchiser. It's like the... Sorry, I'm putting this together in my head as okay. we're talking. We can so edit out the silence. But like, <laughs> what's that? We can edit out the silences or fade in some <laughs> some of his music. The... I don't mean he's like he's not searching like there's a nostalgia like there's the Trump nostalgia, which is a a pining for an America that never existed as a way to uh, as a way to promote a white supremacist vision of America. Right. Uh, An America where uh, women and and POCs and LGBTQ plus people are quiet. And don't talk or don't exist, yeah, and that's no. like a different kind of faux nostalgia. And then there's the uh, uh, his Dave Berman's faux nostalgia is an America that never existed because he has taken the best parts of it and poeticized them. But it's also because he didn't fit into any America, real or imagined. And I don't feel like I ever did, and I don't know that you ever felt like you did. So, you know, he wasn't on the level of Bob Dylan. He wasn't connecting with the masses because. You know, it wasn't music for the masses. It wasn't relatable to people. But for me, I, and I don't know how much of this was because I actually felt like an outcast and his music provided me with empathy or because I loved his music so much that I, like, defined myself as an outcast, you know, if it was a chicken or egg situation. But I think that that, that celebration of the weird, you know, the old weird America or whatever the term might be, that's what's there. And, you know, even if it's sometimes hidden behind the, the one-liners and the... The, and the, the brutal honesty that is actually in these songs, which is another thing I wanted to talk about with you, because I think that that emerged I mean, over, Jesus. Time, but that emerged over years for me, before I realized it. Yeah, I mean, th- I think that might you might be hitting upon something why it's so difficult for all of us. I I, th- I do think it's something I talk about on beginnings a ton, but I I think um, otherness, capital O otherness uh-huh. is. An important facet of being an artist. It's probably not like uh, you can probably make decent art. Uh, you know, look, I've been in Los Angeles a, a long enough to know that you can be an empty person and still make. You can be good empty art. and be other too, though. Well, I just mean that like you can mimic. If you're a sociopath, you you can be good at mimicking human <laughs> emotions. You can right. learn how to do it, and you can learn how to make good art and still be an empty person inside. Um, and you could you could come from you could be popular and still make good art in some way. You could be popular in high school, but like I, I think, um, let's just say in general, right? This meant, this is not a hard and fast rule, but I think otherness is an important part of making good art. You know, whatever your definition of good is. Yeah, you I know, mean, a very, I, I, a very generous, expansive okay, I'll, definition. I'll subscribe to that for the purpose of your argument here. Yeah. I think that there's something about about Dave Berman that was like that was some kind of connective tissue between people who felt othered. Sure, I mean, who felt who felt America, who had some kind of empathy, who felt what America is or was, or wanted to belong to America, and didn't. Can I ask you the first time you ever heard his music? 
yeah, it was in high school. To me, I think the the first time I heard his music was it was more. I heard the Arizona record. Well, yeah. My how did friend, you hear of his music? I mean, was that just your friend said, "Hey, check out this thing called the Arizona record"? Silver Jews. I, you know, my friend Josh was his brother had um, was in college at the time and would was like the pipeline to interesting music. Mm-hmm. I heard Pavement on the No Alternative soundtrack. So you knew, but you were aware of the Pavement connection when you first heard of Silver Jews. You you saw it as a side project of Pavement. I, I mean, I don't know if I classified it at all like that. Yeah. I just knew that this had, you know, so I was, it had to have been like about 17. Right. And, um, so I'd been a fan of pavement since ninth grade. So this probably somewhere like 11th grade and his brother said like, Oh, this has Steve Malkmus in it too. And so I listened to the Arizona record and it kind of blew me away that you could make something that was that unpolished. So that was the first thing you actually heard was the Arizona record. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love the Arizona record. I found it at a garage sale that year I lived in Kentucky, which might have been another reason to you know have this special connection to that year and falling in love with that band. Um, I I was I was extremely online. Like I was on the internet when I was thirteen, <laughs> and I was reading news groups like Rec. Music. Indie Rock or whatever. And I was I was very much into pavement. And I had heard about Silver Jews. I think Drag City might have even had some sort of website then. Like, hold a- on, can I ask you? Did you? Did you like call into BBSs? Uh, before, yeah, but that I wasn't. But that was way before I was into pavement. I was. I would dial yeah. up. Yeah, I would dial up my modem and I would go on um, whatever was out there now, early websites and news groups. For those listening, BBSs were bulletin boards. Oh systems. yeah, sorry for the millennials listening. But um, the thing for me was that I I had no money. I was a 15 year old kid living with my parents, who I don't even know what money I got. It must have been an allowance or something. And I wa- I could not possibly hear all the music I-, I wanted to hear. You know, I would go to record stores and just stare at the records and tapes and-, and CDs and dream of like you know being able to hear them all. And I started to actually trade tapes online with people on these news groups where we would just like dub a bunch of albums into a bunch of like Maxell tapes and mail them to each other <laughs> because I could then hear like you know all the back catalog of Guided by Voices without having to you know wait to be able to buy it. And yeah. I, I remember reading about Silver Jews, and it was like, oh, I, I actually, I was on the pavement mailing list. That's what it was. It was a listserv about pavement. And people were talking about Silver Jews as this, like, side project. And it was like, oh, is this some sort of joke? They made this record that's so poorly recorded, you can't even hear the songs. And this song called Secret Knowledge of Backroads is on this, you know, Peel Sessions, which I had heard. Um, so I wanted to hear it. And then I, my friend, he bought Starlight Walker and reported that it only had one good song on it and <laughs> and he made me a mixtape with advice to the graduate on it and he said oh that's is, the one i was gonna he, say was it it was the yeah, second song I mean, trains across the ocean but he said this is the only good song on it, and i could hear malcolmus singing on it and I, I couldn't even tell if malcolmus was the lead vocalist or if you know it was all confusing to me but it was an obviously a great song and I got him to dub the rest of the album for me even though he didn't like it i don't know i should have just tried to buy it off him or something and then, um, so this was like by that point, 96, and I, I won a contest at my school to go on an archaeological expedition of my choice from this list I could choose. So I chose to go to Mallorca off the coast of Spain to the Balearic Islands. So when I was six, Wait, what contest was this? It was like this thing, the scholarship to my, my school had every year. One student got to go on this like expedition from this program. So I won it for that next summer after... Um, 10th grade to 11th grade, I guess. No, it would have been 11th grade to 12th grade. 
And I got to like, so I flew to Mallorca like alone, which is pretty cool stuff when you're a 16 year old from Pittsburgh who'd never been anywhere. And I went on this archaeological dig for two weeks, which was mostly boring and hot, um, although I'm really grateful for the experience. And I brought a bunch of these Maxell tapes with, you know, two albums on them. And I think the Starlight Walker tape, side A was Starlight Walker and side B was like a, a mix of just various things. But I listened to the hell out of that and um, realized that, hey, actually, like pretty much every song on this is good, not just one. And I was mm -hmm. a fan at that point, you know, and then when I, I went back and I heard the Arizona record and Dime Map on the Reef and it was like, oh, wow, this is really poorly recorded, but there's something really great. But it, <laughs> and the whole reason I, I brought this up about how did you first hear about them is because my first take was that it was like this ironic conceptual joke that this band was like so cool. They didn't even need to go into the studio that if you thought pavement was slack or whatever people said that they played their instruments like without trying that Silver Jews took it to the next level. It wasn't even a real band. And I and then I remember um, finding some of these like seven inches like I taped off of people like there was that one with um, the Sibelian Rebellion in Old New York. And Wait, wasn't there one called like Dime Map of the Reef? Dime Map of the Reef is the first release. It was a seven inch which has like Canada on it and the Wana Falcon and like that's totally great. But you know their Canada song is not a late period Silver Juice song. It is not a particularly honest or emotional song. So to me, they were a band that was like playful and ironic and funny. And as I grew older, I realized that all of that was true, but they were, as Berman matured, his music never lost that humor, it never lost that irony, but it, it took a very, very deep honesty and, and self-expression and wrapped it all together in a way that almost nobody has ever been able to achieve, in my opinion. Two, three, four, Canada! Yeah, I mean, the the more you talk about it, like as as we're sitting here talking about like him and Steve Malkmus, because the thing that's like that I th I think is interesting to think about is how like Malkmus has always been kind of not kind of has been very buried in irony. Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult to pull something real or honest out of. There's glimpses of it. You get you get like little bits and pieces every here everywhere. And oh, what glimpses! I mean, when I hear songs like <laughs> Greenlander or Home, they bring me to my knees still. But that's also because I've you know infused 25 years of my own associations into them. Yeah, I mean, if you just try to like take it as it is, you can kind of see something that Malkmus is trying to say or express underneath the irony or the abstraction. I mean, I think about this a lot because. I think a lot of my uh, – when I first started writing music or when I first started writing comedy, uh, I was terrified to show who I was as a person or terrified to 
that I would possibly say something like express an emotion that was cliched and that I would be ridiculed for that. And so I buried it, but I took all my cues from Malkmus, really. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I buried it under, you know, thousands of layers of irony so that you could never, so that even if you like got a glimpse of what I really meant or really felt and you were going to ridicule me, I could just deny it and say that was part of the joke or that was just an abstraction or something like that. Well, for me, and, oh, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. And I think it's interesting that that, that him that Steve Malkmus and Dave Berman were not just, I mean, they were friends. So, I mean, that part's not interesting, but that they were um, creative partners and you have someone who is, who is so steeped in abstraction and someone who is using abstraction as a way to one person is uh, obscuring their emotions and the other person is using abstraction to amplify their emotions and their empathy and I, I wonder if that's also part of the split that as it goes on that like it's not just that pavement became popular and Dave Berman resented the fact that Silver Jews was seen as a side project. But I wonder if it's also just that like Malkmus never wanted to either he never wanted to or never had the capacity to um, use his abstraction to be honest in a in a more forceful way. Whereas Dave Berman became used the abstraction like just it kept intensifying as it went on as his career went on. I would Does that say make sense that, at all? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I think that almost the central negotiation of my creative life and probably of, of most people's who are worth a shit is how do you find a way to express yourself that still has artifice, still has style still has something unique and and some personality but is also communicating something and you know i went through various steps in that growth and i'm not i'm not necessarily finished hopefully <laughs> you know i mean even this the show is called serious introspection which is sort of i guess ironic if you think about it although it was really just called that for no reason but as you know i i keep having these moments you know when i was young i loved pavement and indie rock and guided my voices and then i got into the residence and sun Ra and harry parch and i was going through all of the discovery of avant-garde music and it all just sort of snowballed until we're at the point we're at now where you know anything you ever want to be influenced by is out there for you to find so it becomes up to you to find what is actually meaningful to you and in the last maybe 10 years i've started to really turn away from the avant-garde and turn back towards things that are direct and communicative uh, a huge yeah. influence for me, like when I discovered Joe Frank's work, it was just, you know, he would be, and he also passed away just about two years ago, or maybe just over a year ago. But uh, Joe Frank, who is a, if, if people don't know, he was a radio host in Los Angeles who did uh, 30 years of amazing, strange radio hours that are sometimes monologue, sometimes, you know, scripted material with, with actors, sometimes just these absurd uh, found sound pieces. And, you know, he's hundreds and hundreds of hours that I have still not completely all digested, but some of his best <laughs> You work... can find, by the way, if, if anyone's interested, you can find... His wife puts up episodes on his website every once in a while. Yeah, and anything you can find out there. I mean, I've, I've found his everything that, that there is. and But in particular, um, I the, the name of my own next record album is going to be based on uh, Joe Frank's last radio show called The Other Side, where he did a series of 
programs that were built around these phone calls between him and his friend, kind of like this, except um, I'm getting off topic here, but Joe Frank's work really blew me away because it was so honest, even though it would still could still be absurd and still be fictional, and it had so much humanity into it, in it, but it also had all this irony, and it also had characters, and it also had distance and grumpiness and, and emotions and all the moods. And I think... Um, the death of David Berman made me realize that he is, is on that same level, even beyond that level to me. And he, I think he disguised his honesty through all of the devices in his work that he, he tends to be cited for. All these great quotable lines, they, they make you laugh. I mean, there's like bad puns and jokes in his songs, you know? I, I was thinking not, he was the only one. If I, there was some pun, there was something in Purple Mountains. I can't remember what it is now exactly. Well, the whole but first like, song is just something, like bad puns. Well, so but there was some Fargo specific one. Got annoyed, you know? Oh, it was, yes, it was the, um, I lost my genitalia to an anthill in Des Moines. If I heard that from anyone else, I would have been like, this is shit. There yeah. is something about him that like what would have been a shitty line from someone else was not. And you know, I lo- most of these, um, not most of them, quite a few of the the. Th- the think pieces, the the memoriams that have been online. And by the way, I want to say that they've all been excellent. Like I have not been disappointed by one yet. And just before we started this, I found a book forum published a, a long one by actually three different writers, including Ed Park, which I've bookmarked to read um, tonight after this. But they've all been really beautiful and everybody's expressed how he affected them in, in some way that is similar to what we feel, but it's a little bit different. And that's why they're beautiful to read. And the poem, most people are talking about his music, but the one poem that everybody goes back to seems to be Self-Portrait at 28, which I guess, you know, is his, like, masterpiece of written poetry. And there's this couplet in there, or triplet, I guess, three lines in there that, in the third stanza, it starts, I am trying to get at something, and I want to talk very plainly to you so that we are both comforted by the honesty. Mm. And, and that is, is such an insane thing to put in a poem because in this book of actual air, which has all these weird cantos for James Missioner, and you know it has all these just bizarre snippets, almost like overheard fragments of popular culture, and and then to drop something like that in a poem, it you almost expect that there is like a catch to it. You know, is this a character? Is it a joke? Are we supposed to laugh at this? But no, he's. I'm trying to get at something, and I want to talk very plainly to you, so that we are both comforted by the honesty. And. God, that almost makes me understand why he couldn't bear to live in this world. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'm being a bit melodramatic here, but no, but not to keep going back to it. Like, look, there is, uh, there's okay. Here's a a lot of things. A lot of again, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying a lot of this is grandiose, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's uh, approaching something. It's a constellation. That uh, is a uh, approximation of something real, but the <laughs> again I have to all I have is like I've been so transformed by studying philosophy that all I can think of is stuff like okay there's the Kantian idea of the thing in itself all right which is like there is existence there is the world around us mm-hmm. and we don't have access to it because we are we're constrained by our conceptual schemes whatever they are right. Okay, and so there's some, or even just like our, our, our ideologies, our f- outlooks, our, fam- yeah, you can our even families. Say, you can even like reduce it to something simple, like our our the way that we see the world 
mm-hmm. literally our eyes are, you know, that's not quote unquote the way the world is. It's the way our sensing apparatus okay. has delivered the world to us. And, but there is something, whatever, you know, the thing in itself, there is something beyond that. Or I think about like in the postmodern age, you know, there's this dialectic in history of, this is again why I said this is a little grandiose, but like there's this dialectic in history where we went from modernity, where we went from like pre-modern to modernity to post-modernity, right? And in it, we went from like a very religious, very, uh, a, a, a species that understood faith or that had faith or that had a feeling of some deeper connectivity to the world in a way that we can't explain or can't um, specify in language to a, you know, a a science suffused world that really um, that really voided all of those feelings. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have a feeling of faith. I don't really understand what faith is. Sometimes when I talk to people on beginnings who are religious or who have faith, um, I I end up talking to them for the entire hour about that because I'm so fascinated by that feeling of being connected to something larger than yourself. Like, I feel very isolated all the time. Uh I I feel – again, I think this is partly why there's something about – I don't mean to like – to uh, turn Dave Berman into my higher power in some way, but there is something connective about his music – uh, his lyrics in a way that I haven't felt that co- connection to other people or to something larger outside myself. There's a lot of, as I've spent the last 10 days thinking about nothing but David Berman, more or less, I've realized that what you said about the higher power, like, yeah, his music and lyrics contains no trace of conventional spirituality. There's like, right. Unless it's talking about like a church or something as that's part of the American landscape. But I would assume he's he's an atheist. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any like Marianne Williamson kind of woo in his work. Yeah, sure. I don't know about like yeah. There's certainly no new age bullshit. I I wonder if he was he had something deeper. But this is the thing I'm saying that like well, he did he did actually become like postmodern age. He apparently where, converted like, back to Judaism though in his later years. But I don't know to what extent that that necessarily as as you know you know you can be a devout Jew while also be an atheist. Yeah, but do you, you don't convert because well, you convert's like the not culture. the right word. But he apparently, after his 2003 suicide attempt, apparently rediscovered Judaism or embraced it and became very, very practicing. Whatever that means. That's at least... yeah. I don't think you don't do that because you like the culture. Like okay. it's really boring. You have to really believe. You have to like. There's lots of stuff about the religion that I find very meaningful, and I think it's mostly stuff that has to do with. Um, Mitzvah, which is doing good deeds, and tzedakah, which is giving charity. Things like that I find very meaningful, and I think you can't pry that stuff apart from the religious part of it. So then I guess but he I don't did, feel faith about it. I guess he did. It's, it's an ethical duty to me. So then he did Whereas believe in I something. I think if you convert—I'm sorry, what did you say? So then he did believe in something, but the only output we've seen since this happened, I guess, would be the Purple Mountains record, as he hasn't published any poetry since Silver Jews broke up. Yeah. And I don't hear well, he any of it— blog. Okay, I, I, I never think, I'm not familiar with that. Uh yeah, I think it's called Menthol Mountains. I would check it out. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. I've I've looked at bits and pieces cuz I forgot it was his blog for a while. Do you um see in his later writings then do you find the spirituality expressed because if it's in the Purple Mountains record, I haven't heard it yet. 
there, well, this is the thing I'm trying to say, which is that like in this postmodern era where like faith has been almost vanquished or like a deeper connection, you know, there's this um, great blog I read called After the Future, and it's written by a uh, he's a teacher in, I think, Washington somewhere, mm-hmm. but he has a an advanced uh, degree. He has a divinity degree from Yale. And he's very knowledgeable about history and religion and philosophy. And he he writes about this idea called ontological dizziness and basically says that in the postmodern era, we're search we we're we're kind of disconnected from faith or grace or something deeper. He's a Catholic thinker, by the way. Uh-huh. Um that we are feeling this kind of ontological dizziness and that we're just grasping for things and whatever can can give us a sense of meaningfulness in this world we latch on to. And for some people that is like Trump because he's giving them this faux nostalgia of a white America that never existed, but that they think existed and that they want to exist. And that gives them meaning in a spiritually devoid world. And that gives them meaning in a, you know, a world that's like being ravaged by neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. And, I th- this is the, this is again this thing like this thing in itself. I think Dave Berman was particularly good at getting past a lot of this stuff to find whatever the postmodern thing in itself is. Again, that I, I have to keep um, uh, asterisking that I realize this is very grandiose and wordy. Well, do you but know this there's poem something of- there that I'm trying to grasp that I think those words. Are approaching this poem and the others he, about some find the light in literature, others in find art. You do, do you know this one? It, it's one of his like I assume his earlier poems because it has this rhyming scheme that he seemed to drop by the time Actual Air came out. But he, he talks about the light with a capital L, the light, capital T, capital L, and that that could be taken as exactly what you're saying, trying to find meaning. You know, the the light they never see, they think they do not need. It's it's quite it's quite beautiful, I think. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, but that's it. I think there's something about him. There's some reason why we're all feeling, why we're all mourning someone we didn't know. Well, to some extent, it also is because if I if he didn't just drop this record, and I heard that David Berman, who retired from music in 2008, had committed suicide, I would have been sad, of course, and realized as how much his work meant to me. But it wouldn't have been this this quite the same level of tragedy i think mm. uh, and that makes me feel horrible that makes me feel incredibly selfish about trying to make his death about like what could he have given me what what else would have been in it if he had lasted longer how many more records would he have made you know it's it's absolutely terrible but it, it does i have to say affect it because he did just come out of nowhere with this great album i mean I think it's a pretty great record at least whatever it's devastating it's it's like i don't think it's like perfect it's a total suicide note but- but I mean, li- literally, it is. Yeah, it it's, literally can... is. I mean, and again, he he took he shared his pain with us for our entire lives, right? He has the master at taking his pain and wrapping it in something palatable, and using humor and using beautiful images and just this sort of observed observations that are just really, really spooky, and it sells the pain. It makes it better. That's what that's an incredible thing that all art should strive to do. And because he did that, he he dropped this record, which is the absolute bleakest lyrics he's ever put out. I mean, even darker than what's on like Bright Flight. And yet it's funny. You know, I laughed quite a lot the first time I heard some of the jokes and the music is peppy and bouncy. And it's, you know, it's sneaky in a way, isn't it? 
Well, I mean, that's pop music, right? Yeah. Take something well, depressing yeah. and put it to put it to a, a G and a C. Well, it's like gallows humor, as people say, too, is, is definitely like something I think his humor was connected to. Well, I don't like talking to myself, but someone's got to say it, hell. I mean, things have not been going. I mean, I can't like the what what uh, what's the name of the first song on Purple Mountains? I mean, it is like spelling out his despair. Yeah, and the second song continues to spell out his despair. I I mean, I really do think like you can kind of like see the pieces of his life. I think you know the the more he got isolated, the more he was isolated. Like after his mother passed away, I think that's probably yeah. That was, that was probably like you know the, the, these ties to the world being cut until he is sitting alone in an apartment. You know, I I, I think about like all the times that he tried to all the scrapped albums, all the times he tried oh to reach God. out to people. I mean, if those recordings come out, this is again being selfish. But you know, apparently the Natural Bridge he first made a go of it with Malkmus and I assume Nastanovich. And they just scrapped those sessions. Then he he formed the band with the like Drag City session guys and made the Natural Bridge, which is an absolute masterpiece. But I've for years wondered if I would ever get to hear the aborted sessions. And I think the same thing happened with Purple Mountains. Didn't he record a bunch of it with some other band before he got the Woods guys to do it? He started with Destroyer. Like he started oh, okay. working with Dan Behar, which is interesting because I think Dan Behar is in some way a reflection of him. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely much more on the abstraction side of, of communicating through lyrics. Like, he is some, like Dan Behar is, it, occupies a space somewhere between Steve Malkmus and Dave Berman. In that. I, I don't know. Maybe put him further. I, mean, I put him on the other side just, of Malkmus in a way. But yeah, anyway, go on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I do think it's interesting. Like, he worked with him first, and then he worked with someone else. I forget who it was. Yeah, and he, and then he clearly doesn't want people like, to hear that stuff. So if, if, if it gets released posthumously, then it's sort of like, uh, maybe it's not good to release it. But the greedy person in me, the fanboy, wants to hear it, for sure. I do, uh, it's weird. I don't care. I yeah. don't care about that stuff. That's it's good. like more of a curiosity to me than it is something that I'm clamoring for. I think the stuff like about... This is, by the way, that's not judgment of you. No, I'm it's just fine, like, it's fine. Um, the stuff about his father, that I, did, I wasn't aware of that because when he broke up Silver Jews, I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to what was going on with music, and particularly that kind of music at the time. I wasn't wild about the last two Silver Jews records. I mean, they're okay. There's some, I'm going to actually order them, I think, because they're like the only two I don't own. And They are okay. They are yeah, indeed just okay. There's I gems. to them. I got... I, I, I was listening to when I first moved to Los Angeles. I listened to Bright Flight a lot because I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't think I ever like really oh, listened Bright to that. Oh, Bright Flight's fantastic. Like, oh, this I, is, I love Bright it's, Flight. It's great. Yeah, it, it's it's really wonderful. Yeah, and then is. I'm like, well, maybe I should give the last two a, another chance. 
And they're not bad, but they're not great either. Yeah, I think to some extent the the sort of genre conventions of, of country music, when he was having this ramshackle 90s Silver Jews band and trying to do country music, it was it was wrong. You know, it was like a bit broken. And you have a record like The Natural Bridge, which is a country record, but it's such mm-hmm. a strange way to do country music. And the cliches of, of the genre are mentioned and they're embraced, but they're not actually performed. And I think in the last two Silver Juice records, it just becomes a full-on... And even in Bright Flight, where there's that cover of Friday Night Fever, which is fine. You know, it's an exercise in performing <laughs> a song. But it's, you know, it's it's missing something. And I think he is, it's great that he, he got himself in a better place. He found, a, you know, a relationship. He had a good musical connection. He was doing well in Nashville with people who cared about him and supported him. And um, it just the music is lacking something i'm not i'm not here to complain about david berman on this podcast at all but um i do wanted to go back to talking about the the stuff of his father because i wasn't aware about this i never read this breakup letter it was only when the purple mountains record came out and i started to read press about it that i even knew that he had like renounced his father and quit silver jews because he didn't feel that it was a force that could stop what his father did and mm-hmm. I, I think, I don't know how much that the pain of that upbringing and this like relationship with his father caused his his suicide, but I wish I could have like somehow communicate to him how much I am the person I am and I have the values I have because of Silver Jews and much other music and writing and and film and you know art, but. Yeah. You know, a desire the, to find to be that honest and that poetic. But but what is the point of like you know in the time of fascism? What is the point of making non directly politically engaged culture? And I I've struggled with this for a long time. And I actually think that it's I am I have the values I have because of culture. Not and you know my parents to some extent, but that was also a lot mediated through culture. And you know it was punk rock and you know, anti-establishment ideas were introduced to me when I was young, and it's now made me this fucked up, weird socialist American guy living in Finland, which is what I am now. But I'm grateful for it. And, you know, maybe Guided by Voices don't directly engage with politics, and maybe I don't even know if the creators of all the music I love even shared my views, but for whatever reason, the values I have are a product of the culture I love. And that is why you should still make stuff. You know, that is the absolute reason. It's for the market is now whatever and, and the the internet and digital content and blah, 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 blah. It's all fucked. But there's still minds out there. There's minds to be shaped, young minds. You know, you can teach. You can, you can have children of your own. And some of us, we choose to make culture. It's, it's necessary but not sufficient. I think about this sufficient. a lot because thing, but, but it, you know it there's this mattered. It mattered to me so much. Like I absolutely there's nothing in Silver Jews lyrics anywhere that say, you know, you should be a socialist. Yet at the same time, the values I have about greed and pain and and love and how to treat people and kindness, some of it comes from his music. So, right, but I mean, there's another chicken and the egg kind of thing, which is like, did you? We already predisposed to feel that way, and so it attracted you to him. Versus, sure. did you learn that from there? I just think that, like, if we're talking about the value of making art in a fascist era, I think it's valuable, but I don't think it's the thing. I I think about this a lot out here because there's um, 
people think that just like that, especially, sorry, there's these two things where it's in Los Angeles where um, there's a push for bare diversity without there being any kind of political content attached to that. Mm -hmm. And also in general, there's the kind of like liberal centrist feeling in America that representation is all you need. Yeah. No. And I think a lot about how like, well, we won the culture wars and we still have concentration camps in America. So obviously that's not enough. Of course it's It's, not enough. But you can't, it's not, but you can't, but the, there's also this kind of like, I think a hard left line, which is just like, all it takes is action and you have to, you know, all it takes is direct action. And I don't think that's, sufficient either i think you have to have both of these things in tandem so i do think it's important to make art but i don't think it's i don't think we should kid ourselves and say that's all we should do no i i I I definitely don't think that and but this is the the thing that i wish david berman could have understood is that he said that the line was something like silver jews could not be enough of a force to counteract what his father did i'm paraphrasing but it was something about that and it's like actually it was a pretty good force for doing something because his father may be evil and his father will die and his father will stop doing evil things and someone else will take over and do them. But the silver Jews records will last forever. And I know it's not the same as actual direct political action with an impact that affects someone's material life from point A to point B, but values matter. They absolutely do. And if they, if they stop mattering, then we we are really hopeless. And I, I just don't know if he, was in denial of that or if he was just so down on himself apparently he just found it hard to believe that he had any fans at all like he thought that there were only like 10 people out there that liked his music well he was depressed yeah. i mean when you're depressed you see your own reality i mean tunnel. clinically i assume like, right I, when yeah. you're clinically depressed it's it's tough for you to believe any of that stuff it's tough for you to believe i'm sure his father was a monster like yeah. the you know i'm sure he was hypercritical of him and i'm you know just like thinking about the way that this the dynamics of this stuff work yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that it, you know, it formed him into a, into a person who couldn't believe that people loved him, or that he was beloved himself. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it just makes you. I'm you, sure you, the inside of his head was constantly telling him that it, it was worthless. You wrote in your, um, if I can quote your Instagram post, that um, it's hokey to say, but bears repeating that you should take care of your friends who are suffering, and. You know, that's a really simple and beautiful sentiment that I, how many other artists have I not told how much their work meant to me and helped shape my values, you know, who could be in a position like David Berman? Like, you know, I I think that the part of the the vapid hell of social media and digital communication is that it's kind of taken me out of the feedback loop a bit. Mm-hmm. I don't like, you know, I used to go to, I mean, my musical tastes are shaped by going to see bands that would play in rooms that were very small that I could then go talk to the artists and get to know them. And, you know, I met a lot of the people who inspired me and I don't do that anymore. I don't have any interaction with anybody whose work I really like. And I think that that's actually kind of sad in a way now. I'm wondering um, how to engage with the sort of like constructive feedback to let people know that they are part of something because it, it can be quite important as we see. It is. I think there's two things there. One is I, I learned this at UCB, which is if you like something, you know, everyone thinks that like that w- when you put something, especially in, in a world where like there's a million um, pieces of art that you can access at any one time, you just kind of like throw something into the world and you don't know if it's good or not. Yeah. 
And it's important that if you like something, tell the person that you think it's good. Or if you like them, you know, tell tell these people like, you know, I learned at UCB, like you would get off stage, you would do like some improv set or something like that. And you would be like, oh, that was terrible. And then people would say like, oh, that was great. I really like this thing or this thing or that thing was funny. And you, and it would change your brain a little bit. It would change your chemistry. And you would realize it it was not as terrible as you thought it was maybe. Or, you know, or that you just weren't putting something out into a void and that it, it had, there was some meaning attached to it. But the other thing is that if people who are depressed, it's, it's more than, it's more than just like letting them know their work means something. It's the support system around them that needs to be strengthened. You know, I'm sure it, I mean, who knows? I don't, we can only speculate about yeah I mean, about I'm the trying, people I, in dave berman's I'm life and i don't, I don't really actually want to speculate about yeah. that but like that's the stuff that's important when i was younger i was a cobra in every case i wanted clearly not a person that was meant to to exist in the the digital communications of today i mean i know he used email but i the thought of him being able to fit what he did actually to be honest a lot of his lyrics are tweets aren't they <laughs> like you could <laughs> he is like one of the most eminently quotable artists you can take one line out of the context and it's still striking and beautiful and amazing yet at the same time his his work kind of demanded the context and I, I just don't th think he he could have really functioned in this social media era. I mean, he as far as I know, he wasn't using social media, was he? Uh, there was a apart from the unless you count the Purple blog, Mountains he, Twitter account. Yeah, but I doubt he was tweeting that. Right, that was just announcement. Well, he, I mean, it was his stuff. You could tell, but it wasn't like I mean, he wasn't like tweeting like, uh, you know, was just at In and Out Burger. Love yeah. that animal style. It yeah. wasn't something like that. It was like yeah. weird. It was weird. It was like what you would expect Dave Berman to tweet out, like strange things, strange cartoons. And the, a lot of the, the memoriams have gone on about uh, the people who did get to meet him, uh, which, you know, again, I, I'm not someone who usually at this point cares about meeting people. You know, when I was younger and, and I could be directly connected to the people making art that inspired me, it was part of not just finding my place in the world, but like understanding that I could, you know, have a place in that world. But as I've gotten older, it's not really that important to me. Um, but the people who have met him, I mean, the, the reminiscings of his mannerisms and his behavior, is they've all been incredibly beautiful. And people, more than one person at least, has, has talked about this idea of kindness and generosity and how he really sounds like he just treated people so well. 
Which, yeah. you know, to some extent, it might be hagiography. No one's going to write about a person who just died and say what a, a jerk they were. But it, it's... It, but no, they, they I think it's a little different now. Like it's, it's, I do it's think in like, his music, isn't it? It's in his lyrics. I mean, there's all of these ironic observations and this pastiche of this Americana that never really existed. And, you know, there's vagrants and lowlifes and, and depressed people and drifting aimless people. But there's never a judgment of any of them. There, you know, it, it, I don't think there's a mean streak in any of his lines. It, it's really such such beautiful and open uh, music. And I don't, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm someone like you may know me in person to be quite cynical. And maybe if I'm having a conversation or I'm doing an interview or something, I, I can come off as cynical. But I'm extremely careful in my output, which you know, I don't. I don't put a lot of things out there, but I, I really, really don't want cynicism to be in any of my creative activities. I, I think um, maybe they're inspired by cynicism, but I, I really believe in like offering alternatives, and I'm really, really careful not to let that sort of darkness in me. Not that I think cynicism is an unforgivable darkness or anything, but I, I'm, you know, to me it's really important if you're going to critique the world to actually try to offer a way forward with it. And I wonder, like, if these darker sides of Berman, I mean, the darkness is in his music in the way it's existential and the way it muses on death and on loss, but there's no anger at all. And I can't think of any of his songs that contain any bit of anger, unless there's something on the last two Silver Jews records that I'm not as you know well-versed in. It's just an incredibly kind person. Did you ever read Charles Bowden? No, I don't know Bowden. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I think some kind of compliment to Dave Berman. He writes, I mean... As a poet? It's not or... very... It, what's that? He's a, he's a poet? No, he is a weirdly. I don't even know how to describe him because he he writes about like the American Southwest. I mean, he passed away a, a couple years ago now, mm-hmm. but like he wrote about the American Southwest. He wrote about the drug war a lot. I would say a kind of poetic journalist. Okay, not yeah. in a like not in a cheap crappy way. But non- I don't nonfiction mean that, like, is his genre. What's that? Nonfiction is the genre generally. I yes and yeah. no. I mean, yeah. it is. It's not. I don't even say it's fiction. It's weird. I've been reading Blood Orchid, okay. which is a a book of his, kind of about like how violence in America, like the way it's the the grip it's gotten, the like you know the genocide of the Native American people, how that's the founding event of America, mm-hmm. and how that has how that has blossomed again the blood I, he uses blood orchid as a metaphor and it's not uh, the way the, the reason i'm kind of like hemming and hawing about trying to describe who he is is because like it's very difficult i mean there's a, a almost like more straightforward still slightly poetic um book of his i forget the name of it but about um what's the other side of el paso the kind of like where the drug has really yeah juarez War, yeah. where it's really t- and there's a lot of um Machiadores, the, the like the factories, I yeah. think they're called, um, and just like it, it's basically like ground zero for the future, like the neoliberal future, mm-hmm. and he uses that as his kind of like central metaphor. Um, it's it 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 is you know he, he's he sees a different kind of America, but he's still like an honest and kindness, an honesty and a kindness comes out in his work, even if it is. A darker vision. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's a challenge. You know, I, I still probably find it easier to be a dick than to be nice to people. It's like, <laughs> I well, mean, it's very easy in this, in, in 2019 to hate some, like I was, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot about, you know, the other side, quote unquote, the other side mm-hmm. is the Joe Frank series so, that I was it, raving about half an hour ago or no. <laughs> The, the, uh, I mean, you know, the Republicans, what we're calling the Republicans, the, that, that encompasses white nationalists and, um, alt-right and racists and people who are just like economically destroyed and kind of stupid too. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, how do you have empathy for these people. Cause I think you, I think the only way forward is to have empathy for these monsters. <laughs> I mean, even calling them monsters is unkind. And is that what, but like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, know what else, like someone who like wants my destruction or wants the destruction of my wife and, and like is like cool with genocide. I don't know how to feel about them, but somehow there has to be again, some reintroduction of like faith or grace to, forgive these people for their monstrous behavior i that has to be the only way forward i think there's some uh, some again grandiose etc etc but there's some note of that in in dave berman some note of like how are we ever going to uh find the synthesis in a very like cheap hegelian way how do we ever find this like synthesis between us between kindness and um depravity and is that again to take it back to the beginning of this this talk we are really really affected by his death i mean i am still i mean i'm doing better with it than i was a week ago but i'm still thinking about him a lot and each it doesn't help that every day at least one new like remembrance comes out and now we're dropping another one in audio form but you know there's a, <laughs> there's a lot if you want to sink into writing about David Berman, there's been more written about him in the past week than there's been in his entire life before. And they're also, as I keep saying, they're all so good. You know, they're all... Well, you hit on it, I'll never John. stop reading them. A- there could be a, one a day for the rest of my life, and I'll probably read every single one. I don't know. They've all... They haven't even been that repetitive. It's it's his kindness that is very apparent in his work. And in a world that is increasingly depraved, to have a... Um, to have an example of kindness out there was comforting in some way. I guess it grew with time. I don't know that you you listen to Starlight Walker. It's as evident in that record as it would be even one record later or two records later. I, I think Bright Flight is is quite a, a turning point, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a record. It's, it's not my favorite, but it's something I... I in the last few years, I've like you as well, probably have been listening to it more and more because it really. It, I mean, and it's also really dark. <laughs> I mean, I I, rem- yeah. I remember you as a song that like even though it's just like a, a oh, cheesy God. story. I mean, I've always have, it's brought me to tears. It's just so brutal and and again, it could be corny, it could be cliched, but that that might be like the sweet spot of taking on the like sad country song genre affectation. And just hitting it perfectly, you know, just this, this distinctly David Berman drawl, you know, and not enough. I don't think enough has been said too about his actual voice, the the manner in which he sings, which you know, it almost starts from speaking, mm. and it's it's deep and it's twangy, but it doesn't sound like Johnny Cash or anything. I mean, he's definitely 
his inflections, the way he goes mm-hmm, at the end of a song, it, you know, to me, there's a universe in that. There was a piece He's in the, the New Yorker. Canadian dude. What, Neil Young? No, the other one. <laughs> Leonard Cohen? Yeah, Leonard Cohen. You just, I mean, thought, you just called Leonard like... Cohen the Canadian dude? <laughs> my brain is starting <laughs> oh, to deteriorate. So It's late at night here. You're so, early in the morning there. Okay, go on. Go on. Uh, yeah, I, I would be way more on top of the on top of things if it was the night. I just woke <laughs> up a little while ago. Yeah, it's, it's all dark here now. But... There, I mean, it's shades of that. Like, if if you started listening to like late period Leonard Cohen as the first thing of his of his work, you would be like, "What the fuck is this?" Dude? Oh yeah, I don't think I know late period Leonard Cohen. Those la- like when he became a monk and made those last couple records, with- very craggly. Yeah. Oh, the voice. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Every single game was a blowout, and the NASCAR blurred into porn. Scenic that don't fall for the traps of a man who was never born. A man who was never born. So the rap became. But um, there was a piece in the New Yorker a couple of days ago about him, about Berman, and it ended by the person discussing how to rent a room which is, you know, one of the absolute greatest songs he ever did. Mm-hmm. And the writer, I, I should actually just quote it exactly, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it because it'll be better. He said that um, he's spent his entire life trying to understand all the different meaning in that song. And he said, there are entire weather systems in this song. And that was such a perfect way to distill how I felt about not just that song, but that entire record and, and all of Berman's greatest work. It it had weather systems in it. You know, it, it changed, it, it moved, it evolved. You could, at different times of your life, it might affect you differently. It was just it's such an incredible power he had to be able to pack such complexity into, again, songs with puns and jokes in them, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. There are certain, there are certain albums or musicians which are of a very specific time or they write music that is very reflective of who they are or what they're experiencing at that moment. I think about Mac McCon a lot or super chunk because mm-hmm. I really love super chunk. But like if you listen to indoor living, you're hearing an album that is about someone in their, I think late twenties or early thirties. Sure, I mean mo- that is most of the music we loved when we were younger doesn't age as well with us. But some artists, and I would actually include Leonard Cohen in this as well as David Berman, as we grow, the music grows with us, and it's right. you know it's timeless. But it's also it's more than just being timeless. It's something that may be a product of how we connected with it in our formative years and took it with us. That I think it has the ability to to grow and to breathe, and that's really powerful and really difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like that idea. What, what was it? Weather system. It's beautiful, isn't it? That line. I hope I'm quoting it right. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll find the actual thing and put a link to it. But but like I like that idea of weather because that, that it's not of a time or place. It's more broadly. It, again, it is. It, look, I'm not trying to say like uh, you know someone in assuming humans live this long, someone in like 2537 is going to listen to a Silver Jews album <laughs> and be like, oh yeah, I get this. You know, I'm sure it'll have the same kind of ring 
as uh, you know, um, some Baroque composer does to us. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, okay, all right, I get it. But there is something more expand, like a weather system is more expansive in time and space than something that is like a that is like glued to a certain geography, like a stop sign. I think I told you this in the email, and I guess we should start to wrap this up because we've been at this for about an hour. But um, I've, when I first heard the Natural Bridge, the Natural Bridge came out, and I was 16 and, again, had no money. And I was hanging out with this guy named Rob who was, like, a university student. Actually, I think he was a graduate student, but he would hang out with me because he was, like, a bit weird. Not in a creepy way, but he just didn't have – I don't know. Um, you, I think you know him. I... Yeah, you know who he was, right? So I'm 16, and, like, I'm hanging out with this guy who's, like, 20 – two or 23 i don't even know how old he was maybe older but again it wasn't like and nothing it wasn't creepy he was cool just cool and weird and didn't have a lot of friends and we both liked the same music <laughs> and i remember like when the natural bridge came out he bought the lp and he brought it over it came over my parents house i think we all had dinner together and i dubbed it off him on my parents turntable which was a, a nice turntable it was a dual 1270 i believe but um the belt was a little bit too tight i guess like the speed wasn't set right so i didn't realize it the night we listened to it but when i made that tape which i then listened to for like five years nonstop. um it was a little bit too fast so i always heard the record a slightly higher pitch and speed than it was so when i actually bought my own copy eventually it was just all wrong to me <laughs> like i was used to hearing it faster and the other thing i want to say about how to rent a room is that um i always misheard the lyrics i think because i guess the lyrics were printed but i didn't have a copy of it for five years so i always thought he was saying there's a lot of things that I'm going to miss, like the thunder down country and the way water drifts, like D-R-I-F-T-S. And it's actually mm -hmm. drips. And both are actually quite beautiful. But um, yeah, that was one time when I actually felt like mishearing c can also be like as good as the original line. Not to say that David Berman doesn't write masterpieces. But the way water drips, come on, think about that for a second. You're going to miss the way water drips. There's something I've been talking, because now, now I'm based in Los Angeles, so on beginnings I've been talking to a lot of people who grew up out here. And there's, I talk to a lot of people that, like, the closer you grew up to the coast, um, a lot of people, both musicians and writers, talk about the quality of the light. There's something different about the quality of the light out here. Mm -hmm that affects them like uh i just talked to red cross mm -hmm. uh you know that band yeah, like the 80s band yeah, yeah. well they, i mean they're still around yeah they, they're putting out an album on merge oh, this cool. sometime this month but um they grew up in hawthorne where the beach boys grew up right and um the, the they talk a lot about the quality of the light and how that's affected their music. And there's another, there's a guy, I don't know if you've ever seen this show, Lodge 49, but I, I just talked it, to the creator I've, of that. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's great. I really love it. Yeah. And he, he also talked about the light. Like, there's some, like, someone who can capture, like, who can take the banality of something like the quality of light or the way water drips and make it something that is infused with um, beauty and, um, morality there's something special about those people and it's and i think that's that's again not to like not to tie this up in a bow but like you know i th ever since you mentioned his kindness or mm -hmm. like the ethical quality of his work i think about that and i think there's something in it like about being able to take the everyday the quotidian and make it ethical and make it i think aesthetics and ethics are just two sides of, a, of the same coin it, it, but it can keep us strong 
if we yeah. if we hold on to it. I mean, there's it's the delivery too. I mean, God, we we probably should wrap this up because we could probably reminisce about David Berman for five more hours. But um, the song "Pet Politics." I mean, we can just go through them. But like, there's something about the way he sings the line "Guard my bed," the first line of the mm-hmm. song, which again, that's a weather system to me. I've been vulnerable. I've been I've been close to people, but far from them at the same time. And I've been needing something. Somehow, just and he doesn't even. It's not like he sings it in some crazy Aretha Franklin way. He just says, "Guard my bed." with this wry kind of, you know, deadpan way. But it's just the hesitations, the the breath of it. It, to me, is saying, I need something. It is so demanding of of emotion and empathy. I don't know. I, I absolutely find that one of his greatest lines, and it's, a, it's three words <laughs> that literally doesn't even really work. I mean, the next line, while the rain turns the ditches to mirrors, is just, you know, classic David Berman poetics just absolutely fucking beautiful imagery yeah guard my bed while the rain turns the ditches to mirrors by a vase of carnations. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a nice yeah. way to end it. Yeah, and we got through this whole thing without even talking about We Are Real. I mean, look, again, <laughs> I've actually thought about like st- starting a podcast where every episode we talk about a Silver Jews song. Oh, and yeah, then talk cr- about... We'll go chronologically like all those other chronological deep dive podcasts. Yeah, but I, then, like, talk about them to like have a guest on and talk about the music that has connected them to other people. Yeah, I, I'd co-host again, that. With, I, th- I would co-host that with you that? in a. I would co-host that with that with you in a second. I would also just fear that it might start to cheapen my connection to David Berman. And yeah, I I worry about the like commercial aspects. Yeah, of this stuff. it commodifies it. Rather. I constantly worry because like I can't do another podcast that isn't commercial. Even if it's not like commercial, it's commodifying it. And even this yes. this here we can put a bow on, and that's that's all we need to publicly say about it at this time, about David Berman. Yeah. Because I think he's going to live on in both of us and many, 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 many other people for a long time in what, everything we do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, Andy. It's amazing to talk to you again, and we should like actually talk about other things besides David Berman because it's great to catch up. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, I'm glad that we decided to do this. Do you want to tell people where they can find you and your work and all the things people do on podcasts? <laughs> Pl- no. Plugs, you I believe what? they're called. I, again, in a look, I've, I've mentioned beginnings enough. You can find that if you're interested in, yeah, uh, kind of like a very uh, um, expansive talks about artists I like their childhoods. Yeah, and I thank you for this. I think this may be the the most serious introspection that's ever been done under the umbrella of this show. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that. And I guess we'll mix in some David Berman music to take us out. That's great. Thank you very much. All right, talk to you later. Bye-bye. When I'm high on bad wings Up by the silver Sad king Trapped in his golden
I dream of a cold river. 